0: Whether you run one pizza joint or several, you order a ton of cheese. Why not get a little something in return? Bacio Cheese has a Gold Club rewards program that literally gives you cash back for every pound of cheese you buy. No tricks or gimmicks. They send you a credit card loaded with cash every month so you can buy whatever you want. Dinner for your family, maybe a gift for an employee, no strings attached. The more cheese you buy, the higher the rate of reimbursement. There are three tiers for rewards, gold, platinum, and for you big-time cheeseheads, diamond level. Here's another bonus. Gold Club members get funds twice a year to use in Baccio's marketing store to use for things like custom printing menus, pizza box stickers, things you'll actually use. You'll also get marketing support for social media, email, and your website so you can stop asking your cousin to help fill in and get back to the dough sheeter. New members get a Baccio Pizza Peel which I continue using for both my pan and hearth baked pies in my home oven. See which rewards tier you qualify for by visiting bacciocheese.com/pizzacityusa and enroll today. I don't like to assume that the tomato is going
1: to be fantastic, right? I want to be- I want to know that it's fantastic. So I came up with these evaluation systems for specific products like tomatoes, cheese and olive oil uh, so that I can
0: understand what makes a great tomato. It's fall and that means a bevy of cookbooks are out but a few new books are worth noting including yours truly plus a fantastic how-to book from the guy behind the pizzeria in Jersey City that garnered three stars in the New York Times. From Chicago history to modern baking techniques, it's all straight ahead. I need a deep dish sausage and a thin pepperoni for here. This is Pizza City, the podcast dedicated to the art, craft, and passion behind some of the world's greatest pizzas. I'm Steve Delinsky, author of Pizza City USA, and founder of Pizza City USA Tours in Chicago. And welcome, everybody. Great to have you along with us for another edition of Pizza City here. Lots going on in Chicago uh, this week. Uh, yours truly Next book is coming out, The Ultimate Chicago Pizza Guide. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. Um, And last week, for those of you following me, I was in Detroit and had a a major uh, pizza experience there. I had been to Detroit once before for pizza eating, just to Buddy's, the original, and then to Cloverleaf, but then also this trip got to go to Shields and Louie's and Detroit Style Pizza Company. Uh, Very interesting that, (laughs) we'll talk about this when I do the show in a couple weeks, but A couple of axes to grind in that city when it comes to who created it, who made it popular, who's doing it the right way, who's the original person who's doing it, and we do it the right, you know. A lot of, I wouldn't say finger-pointing, but a a sort of subtle, well, we lay the pepperoni on the dough as it was done in the 1940s, and these people don't, and so that sort of thing. That was interesting. Um, Detroit was great, though, and going to be doing another uh, little... Sort of web series we're working on. I'm about to release uh, this weekend the first, I guess, the pilot in this series we're calling Pizza City. Uh, no surprise from Chicago, but we're timing it to be released at the same time as my book, uh, The Ultimate Chicago Pizza Guide. we am going to talk a little bit about Chicago today. And since I'm the guest today on the first part of the show, I should ask myself, what was your first pizza memory? Because we haven't talked about this before. I always ask everybody else, my first pizza memory, by the way, was Shakey's Pizza in St. Cloud, Minnesota in the mid-70s, and Shakey's, as you might know, is from Sacramento originally in 1954, possibly, and it was a thin, kind of tavern-inspired pie, kind of interesting that I ended up in Chicago, where that's kind of all the rage, but... Um, I did grow up on that thin and crispy, and I remember you could sort of stand on this um, raised platform. You could watch them through the glass making the pizza. I just thought that was so cool at at six or seven years old to to see that. Um, But I definitely grew up on thin pizza, chain pizza, in the upper Midwest. It it really was my pandemic project, And, and while everybody was baking sourdough at home, and I was doing that too, I figured uh, there were so many pizza places opening in Chicago, we were experiencing this third wave of pizza here in the city. And so when you talk about Chicago pizza, and everybody's like, you know, they all think they know what Chicago-style pizza means. You know, it's a boat anchor, right? It's an above-ground outdoor pool. Uh, that's only really referring to stuffed pizza, which I've, I really learned a lot more in between these two books. So the first book came out three years ago, almost exactly, um, that was Pizza City USA. But this next book worked on it during the pandemic and really also got to fill in some blanks because I just from talking to people and being more immersed in the industry via the podcast and, and writing about it, you learn the real stories. Like, you know, the fact that Ike Sewell did not create deep dish pizza, despite the fact there is a, a plaque of some kind on the UNO's building that says he did. Um, he didn't. Peter Regas, a local historian here, who also debunked the myth that Lombardi's was the first pizzeria in America in 1905, not true. Uh, he found uh, proof otherwise. So talked to him for the book. Uh, got a lot more stories about the old school square places. That was our first wave of pizza here in the 1940s. Post-war was really the big push um, into tavern style, even though it had been around for probably 10 years. Uh, that was really, uh, I thought, interesting that these boys came back from the war... And the first thing they did was go into business with their either their mother-in-law, like at, at Home Run-In, or like with their parents, um, or at Vito and Nick's. So they would have nephews come over from Italy. They'd sponsor them, and then, you know, they opened up baraccos So that was an interesting part of the story. And then also the second wave, which was 1971, when Deep Dish really took off. I mean, Deep Dish was created in 1943. And even in the 40s, again, based on Peter Riggis' research and the pictures he found, the deep dish back in the 40s and even early 50s was not, uh, it wasn't three inches high. You know, it was maybe five-eighths of an inch, maybe an inch at the most in the middle, but it was quite thin. Um, They inherited pans uh, at the pizzeria, it was called, later became Uno's, from a place called the Pelican Club. And they had two pizzas on the menu back in the 40s in Chicago. It was... Sausage and cheese and anchovies and sauce. That was it, and um, it really the turning point was probably in the '60s. Alice May Redmond, um, African American chef from Mississippi, was working at uh, Duquesne and ended up uh, getting poached by the guys who opened up Geno's East to come over because they didn't. They were cab guys. They didn't know anything about pizza, and they hired away the competition. And she couldn't get the dough to proof out and to relax, uh, to press out into the pans when she was panning it out. So she added more fat um, in the way of oil uh, to to loosen it and to get it to press out to the sides. And that's, this is when Chicago starts to really get higher, higher in the middle, higher deep dish. Uh, the construction was always the same with the, the slices of mozzarella on the bottom, uh, what they went calling upside down on the East Coast. But... The, the size didn't really start to get higher until probably this, the late 60s, early 70s. And then we have 71, MyPi opens, Lou Malnati's opens, Pequod's, uh, Guy's opened. Um, well, Guy's was doing thin. And then Rocco Palese, another immigrant, uh, decided rather than doing deep dish like all the other companies were doing, he was going to do something that we ended up calling stuffed. And so he sort of went back to the old country and thought about the, the Easter pies, the pizza rusticas that might have been filled with eggs or cheese or salami. And um, in this case in Chicago, it was sausage and shredded mozz, And then a second layer of dough, a thinner layer of dough across the top, and then that was covered with tomato sauce. So the sauce never really touches the ingredients. Um, a segregation of sauce uh, and ingredient, and I... I personally like when the sauce is cooking with everything and kind of marrying the flavors. But this is when stuff started in 71. And then two former employees said they were going to go back to Argentina. And they said goodbye to to Nancy's folks. And then they ended up opening a place called Giordano's on the south side. And, of course, there was no social media, so you wouldn't have found out about it unless your cheese and meat supplier told you one day that, um, hey, your former employees are doing a, a place called Giordano's, doing the same kind of pizza. So I get into all these stories in the new book. Um, I don't want to belabor the point. I'd love it if you checked it out. You can. We'll have a link on our website, pizzacityusa.com. Um, you can also just follow us on social media, and we're, we're posting links to it frequently. Northwestern University Press is the publisher. Okay, coming up next, a conversation with one of the most respected pizza makers in the country. uh, Dan Richer from Ratsa in Jersey City talks about his new book, Hitting Stores in a Couple of Weeks. Plus, we're going to preview our next show, so stay with us. Pizza City is brought to you by Pizza Master Ovens. You love the sound of dough being transformed into crust. But what about the dough in your pocket? If you make pizzas for a living, then you know a fully loaded oven affects heat recovery time and makes everything take longer. That affects your bottom line. Say hello to Pizza Master, the most powerful electric oven on the market, has clay ceramic hearthstones. That means crispy crust every time. And talk about precision, you can adjust both the top and bottom heating elements to make any style of pizza, which is what Paulie G's Logan Square owner, Derek Tung, was looking for when deciding to add Detroit-style pizzas to his existing menu of wood-fired pies. We started using the Pizza Masters for our Detroit-inspired Logan Squares. And, you know, really, it's all about the
1: control. It's one of those ovens where you have the ability to control what the temperature's at, but not only that, how much heat is on the top deck, how much heat's on the bottom deck, how often they're firing, Um, It really allows you to do
0: almost any style you want in the oven and just tweak it by small amounts. Plus the ability to get up to 932 degrees combined with exceptional recovery heat allows for high capacity output during peak times. That's money in your pocket. Pizza Master offers 85 different models and thousands of combinations. They've also got demo kitchens all over the country, so go take one for a test drive. Visit mpmfoodequipment.com and use the promo code Pizzacity to get a free swag bag at your demo, that's mpmfoodequipment.com and request your test bake or demo today. And just a little bit of a setup here for our next segment with Dan Richer. Um, I met him a couple years ago. Um, thank you, Anthony Giglio, for, for getting me in there. Uh, and then I ended up going there with Emmett and Scar, uh, which was a fun dinner. And just I just cannot say enough great things about... Uh, Ratza. It's, it's in Jersey City and everybody's like rolling their eyes. No, you take the path train from lower Manhattan. It's like one or two stops. You get off at Grove and you walk two blocks south and you're there. So very easy. I mean, a lot shorter than taking the seven train out to Flushing for Chinese food, which I've done several times as well. Um, you know, I love, it's like a personal point of pride when I tell New Yorkers who've lived there for years some of the things that I do um, and some of the adventures I've gone on, and they've never done it, and I always feel sorry for them. Like, you've never taken the 7 train to Woodside in Queens and, and gone um, for Thai food, and you've never gone up to Flushing and haven't taken the path to Jersey City. I mean, the trains are easy, folks. So, um, Philomena's a good example. Go see Dave um, in Queens. Fantastic pizza. Anywho um i talked to dan richer about his new book coming out it's quite a book I, i've seen the pdf i haven't seen the full book but it's coming out november 9th i believe So pushback push back a little bit covid related i think or supply related i mean you can't even get printing materials anymore and he really goes deep i mean this is for folks who want to make pizza at home that's all i can say um and Uh, We we didn't talk about his first pizza memory because Dan was on a previous episode of Pizza City, and so we we covered that ground earlier. You can look that up. But this was just a a chat about his latest book. Dan, Richard, great to have you back on the podcast. You might be the first guest we've had uh, a second time. So congratulations, sir. Thank you. (laughs) <laughs> Thanks for having me, this is amazing. The new book is called Joy of Pizza. It's a beautiful book. I love the illustrations and the photography because you do a lot of step-by-step, as you would imagine in a book about how to make pizza, but you got some nice illustrations too. Um, one of them, <laughs> like at the beginning, you have sort of this, the perfect pizza for you, at least, because you grew up uh, in New Jersey eating sort of a traditional slice. Uh, you know, you've got to have, obviously, no tip sag. There's the cheese fully melted. The tomato sauce is bright red. There's a crust. You've got the breakdown of the 60% cheese, 20% mostly rosy pink, 20% sauce. How long did it take you to sort of get to this sort of perfect uh, slice, in your opinion? about 18 years. And so you feel like now you're confident enough, you've got so much experience, of making pizza, this is like, this is who you are, this is the kind of pizza Dan Richard's gonna be. Definitely.
1: I feel like I constantly am adding new characteristics uh, to clearly define what my ideal pizza is that I wanna make and that I wanna put out into the world. And it honestly, it, it's not just for me, it, it helps my, my team, right, because if they know what what we're shooting for, they're able to more definitively produce that product. It's kind of the roadmap or a, a set of
0: blueprints for my team. The most important thing, the thing you start with is, you know, it, it's the dough. Everything begins with the dough. Uh, you have spent many years Thinking about uh, time and temperature, different types of flour. Um, As somebody gets into this, and and I'm gonna take this from the perspective of a beginner. I'm not necessarily gonna have somebody working with an all natural starter, they're feeding every day, but if you're just getting getting into this as a beginner, you know, you're buying your scale, you're buying your tools, you're gonna use a home oven. Is there a a sort of a safe, all-purpose flour, sort of a a reliable flour for folks to work with? Because you talk about the turkey reds and the don't use double zeros and all kinds of high-gluten stuff. Where where should we begin for beginners? I always think you should
1: begin with King Arthur unbleached all-purpose flour. You can buy it at any supermarket pretty much across the country. Um, and that's, that's what I use to test all of my recipes because it's, right. it's so accessible and it's so reliable.
0: It's just a, it's a great performing flour that's easily accessible. There's a bit of a myth with the Italian double zero, and then you also talk about why you don't bake with high-gluten flour. Um, do you want to get into that just real briefly? The double zero thing, I think, is a
1: really great marketing ploy that started in, uh, around the Naples area. Uh, you know, double zero is highly refi- refined. Uh, it's milled. Typically, it's milled in Italy. Uh, Italy is a very small country. They can't possibly produce enough wheat to meet worldwide demand for this. You know, imported Italian double zero flour. So they import wheat from the big wheat-producing countries of the world, of which the United States and North America are, or United States and Canada are, two of the biggest wheat producing countries in the world, so our wheat is here. why would we ship it to Italy and then ship it back there's an environmental issue there that uh, you know I don't want to have any any part of and then why not why no high gluten flour okay so for two main reasons one, gluten is difficult to digest okay gluten is kind of like a rubber band right um, and you can actually take a, a, a ball of dough and wash off all of the starch, right? You can actually take a dough ball, put it under running water in your sink for about 10 minutes. Okay. And all starches is, is water soluble. So it'll actually, uh, Hey, did your kids set a house on fire? It sounds like it. <laughs> Sorry. We're in Jersey city here. Uh, so you can actually wash a ball of Of dough, right? You can rinse off all the starch and isolate the gluten. And when you hold this thing in your hand, it is easy to understand why people have digestive issues with it. Okay, so if we can use less of it to achieve the same desired outcome, that's just gonna be easier for people to digest. And that's a beautiful thing, right? We're always trying to use the least amount of a product to create the best outcome. Uh, Also, gluten is like a rubber band, and it's difficult to chew through. So we get a lighter, crispier, more tender product when we use less of it.
0: I want to talk about the fermentation process. You know, you, you get into this too with some great illustrations. Um, and I'm, again, I'm not going to talk about the starter as much as the commercial yeast uh, approach here. But, you know, it's important, I think, and you talk about this maybe add, first you add your, your flour yeast in the bowl, and then you add the water to get everything hydrated. You have a bit of a resting period. Then you add the salt. Why do you add the salt after you've let this rest a bit? Flour is starch right? It's predominantly
1: starch. Starch is a a long chain uh, carbohydrate, right? Um, And yeast consumes simple, simple sugars. So we need to allow the, when you mix flour and water together, enzymes are activated, okay? It's the same enzyme that if you plant a seed in the ground and water it, these enzymes kind of bring, bring the seed to life to, in order for it to grow into a plant. Okay, those same enzymes are still in your flour because flour is ground up wheat seeds, right? So it still has these enzymes and these enzymes are what break down the starch into simple sugars that the, that the yeast can actually feed on, right? So by delaying the salt which as we know, salt, del- salt slows all biological activity. That's why people add salt to prosciuttos, right? Cured meats are all salted to slow bacterial growth and, and slow down biological activity. So we delay the salt so that the enzymes can actually do their
0: job. What about um, tomatoes and cheese? You have something called the rubric in this book that you refer to several times. Well, It's basically how you've assessed or determined what kind of cheese or sauce or pepperoni that you're going to be using. Um, talk a little bit about that rubric approach. So I am not the smartest guy
1: in the world, okay? And uh, I don't have this magical ability to find a delicious tomato, right? We, it's just I I and I don't like to assume that just because a tomato is grown in a certain location like the San Marzano region, I don't like to assume that the tomato is going to be fantastic, right? I want to I want to know that it's fantastic. So I came up with these evaluation systems for specific products like tomatoes, cheese, and olive oil, uh, so that I can understand what makes a great tomato, what makes a great olive oil. And then when we're tasting, we can taste for these individual characteristics. So take tomatoes. Tomatoes are sweetness, acidity, color, uh, presence of seeds and skins, uh, positive flavor attributes, negative flavor attributes. That's what makes a great tomato. So by tasting your you know three different tomatoes with this list of attributes, we're able to kind of dial in to what, which one hits all of those characteristics. Without, without that list, you're just kind of tasting blindly, and you might be influenced by uh, a label or a location. We want to take all of that out of the equation.
0: What about mozzarella? You, you, you talk about low-moisture mozz. That's obviously widely used um, argument for or against. I love all of it especially when it's made with care. Low
1: moisture mozzarella is, is awesome. I grew up eating it. Uh, we don't currently serve it at the restaurant, but I'm not a- opposed to it. We focus more on um, fresh mozzarella. I like the melt better, I like everything about it <laughs> a little bit more than low moisture mozzarella, but there's a time and place for low moisture mozzarella.
0: We're talking with Dan Richer from Raza uh, Pizza Artigianale in uh, Jer- Jersey City, and his new book is The Joy of Pizza. Um, Dan really gets into things like friction factor and uh, fermentation. And one of the things I was sort of, I put a smile on my face when I saw this in praise of the caliper. Uh, he talks about calipers measuring things to the millimeter. Uh, one thing that, I, that caught my eye here, he talks about cured meats says, we tried different uh, thicknesses and, and determined the pepperoni slice to a thickness of 1.75 to two millimeters, provided the textural component of caramelization around the edges so it curls and cups nicely, provides the proper mouthfeel, uh, maintaining integrity, but easy to chew through and is fully cooked in the time we bake a pie. So is that what, what's necessary, do you think? I think it is. Yeah. Yeah. Not just with pepperoni, with every topping
1: that we serve at the restaurant, we're always using a caliper caliper to measure its thickness. Pizza is a remarkably complicated thing to bake. Right. You have to nail the fermentation of the dough. You have to time the 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 way the toppings cook in relation to the way your dough is baking. Right. So the goal is to put the, the raw dough with your toppings into the oven and have the the dough bake perfectly at the same time as your toppings. And if your toppings are cut too thick, they won't cook at the same rate as your dough, right? So we've taken a lot of that guesswork out of it. And if you're making a zucchini pizza and you slice the zucchini to the, the thickness that we tell you, you're guaranteed that the zucchini is gonna cook absolutely perfectly.
0: Dan, did you, was there just a lack of uh, help out there from a professional perspective for pizzas, do you think? I mean, a lot of people have written books about pizza. I don't think anybody's gotten this specific, though, with how they approach I me. Mean, Peter Reinhart's a great source for, you know, baking. I've got the the pan pizza book here at home. Uh, but you really, you really dive deep on this. Was there nothing out there? Is that why you wanted to tackle this? Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, I've been making pizza since, my. I
1: made my first pizza in 2003, right, and I, I've Focused for so long on this, and I just wanted to share it with the world,
0: with the, the home cook, especially, but also professionals. And a great uh, bit of technology here you've got the, the little codes, the scans, just like we would scan for a menu now in a, in a restaurant with our phones. You've got, it looks like, all kinds of methods in, in terms of anything uh, from folding dough to launching into the oven. That's important to show people, yeah? Yeah, I, I'm a very
1: hands-on and visual learner, and there's only so much technique that you can learn from reading words on a page. Uh, so to have a QR code next to the technique, you
0: can read it and then you can scan the code to see it in action. There's so much more I want to talk about, but of course we just are limited time here on show. No. the show. The, the book again is called Joy of Pizza. Uh, Dan Richer is the, the man, the force behind it. The restaurant is Raza. It's in Jersey City. If you're coming from New York, you take the path, train to Grove, I believe, and you walk about two blocks south. I've done it twice. I'm happy to do it again. Uh, pick up his book. If you have any passing interest in pizza, I mean, really, this is really from the pros down to the beginners. Um, I just had such a joy. It was a joy for me reading this book um, and learning so much about just so many tips I'm going to be using at home. Joy of Pizza is the book. Dan Richards, the guy. Dan, thanks so much for your time today. Congratulations on this book. Thank you so much. You're the best. I can't wait to see you in Chicago. <laughs> Likewise. We'll see you at the Chicago Pizza Festival right next uh, summer. It's going to be amazing. All right, coming up in two weeks, we're off to Detroit, where there is definitely some angst and a few axes to grind when it comes to who really created the style. We'll talk to the daughter of the guy, widely acknowledged to have kicked things off. You know, Detroit is known for the cars, for Werner's Ginger Ale, Coney Island, Motown. And now I'm really happy to say that my dad started the Detroit Style Pizza. That was his contribution and we're happy to carry it on. I'll talk with Marie Guerra Easterby, daughter of Gus Guerra and current owner of the Cloverleaf Bar and Restaurant. That's in two weeks on October 29th. Remember to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Please tell a friend and rate us. We'd love to know what you think about the show. We're at Pizza City USA on Instagram, and our website is pizzacityusa.com. That's where you can find out about our tours. We've only, well, we do four tours every weekend, but we're done on Halloween, so just a couple of weeks left. Bureaucratic wrote and performed our theme song, and here is wishing you an optimal bite ratio always.